You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part four in our series on Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. Last time, we left the Corps in early April of 1805. The expedition had spent the winter at Fort Mandan, located near modern-day Bismarck, North Dakota. The Corps had traveled up the Missouri River, meeting with various native tribes along the way, including the powerful Sioux. They had reached the Mandan villages in the fall, the home of the Mandan Nation. On April 7, 1805, the Corps departed. A support group of the expedition, consisting of a detachment of American soldiers and some French voyagers, headed south, aiming for St. Louis, taking the big keelboat with them. The keelboat was loaded with all the specimens and journals and writings that Lewis and Clark had accumulated to this point in the journey. As for the Corps of Discovery, they were heading west. They had two riverboats called pirogues and six smaller canoes. The Corps consisted of Captains Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, three sergeants, and 23 privates. The civilians in the expedition included translator Toussaint Charbonneau, his Shoshone wife Sacagawea, and their two-month-old son Jean-Baptiste, also known as Pompey or Pomp. In addition, there was the tracker and hunter George Drewyer, plus York, who was Clark's slave. And of course, there was our favorite dog, Seaman, Lewis's big Newfoundland. By using the pirogues and canoes, the Corps would be more nimble. They would no longer have to drag the big keelboat up the river. With the smaller boats, the Corps would be able to move quickly and efficiently. The downside to the smaller watercraft was that the Corps lacked the vast amount of supplies that they had had on the keelboat. I do want to mention one thing regarding the decision to send the keelboat back to St. Louis. The reason this was done was that Lewis and Clark wanted to get all the information and specimens they had collected thus far back to St. Louis. But just as importantly, it was believed that further up the Missouri, there were some waterfalls and rapids, waters that the keelboat would never be able to traverse. So, sending it back at this juncture was a logical and wise decision. So, let us set off up the Missouri River. The little fleet of boats set on on April 7th. Captain Meriwether Lewis wrote that the expedition meant to, quote, penetrate a country at least 2,000 miles in width on which the foot of civilized man had never trodden, end quote. The plan was to travel up the Missouri to a place called Three Forks. This was Shoshone territory, the people of Sacagawea. Lewis was counting on Sacagawea to speak to her people, so the expedition could acquire horses and then cross the Rocky Mountains. Lewis and Clark had been led to believe that crossing the Rockies would be fairly easy and could be accomplished in as little as a day. They would be in for a bit of a surprise. The Corps, including the captains, were eager to strike out west. 
Lewis would write, quote, I could but esteem this moment of my departure as amongst the most happy of my life, end quote. That pretty much sums up the attitude of the Corps of Discovery. These were young and eager and strong men, and they aimed to make history. As noted, the expedition was looking to reach the lands of the Shoshone, which were said to be between the falls of the Missouri and Three Forks, the latter where three rivers came together to form the Missouri. The Great Falls of the Missouri, which are located at what is now Great Falls, Montana, were upwards of a thousand miles away, at least by traveling on the river. This was a lot of space to cover, and in between, Lewis and Clark fretted about the Native American tribes that occupied the territory. They were particularly worried about the Assiniboine Indian bands that were known to hunt the banks of the river. They were led to believe that the Assiniboine would not be welcoming. Thus, the captains advanced with the goal of avoiding any encounters with the Native peoples. This is a good time to remind ourselves about the nature of Lewis and Clark's expedition. Up to this point, commerce and negotiations with the natives were key elements. But going forward, this was a classic journey of exploration. The Corps of Discovery wanted to chart the unknown lands to the west and find a route to the Pacific coast. The first few weeks of travel, the expedition made good progress and things were peaceful. While there were no sightings of any natives, there was plenty of signs of activity, such as abandoned camps and horse tracks. All the while, the Corps moved quickly, trying to avoid detection and staying on alert. As a note, the men of the Corps slept in the open, but there was one teepee set up each night, a small lodge where Lewis, Clark, Druyer, Charbonneau, and Sacagawea, and her baby, would sleep. This was likely done for the health of the infant, but it was also done to remove any temptation that the men might have with regard to Sacagawea, a healthy young woman in a camp full of lonely testosterone-oozing men. In fact, one Mandan woman had wanted to come along on the expedition, but she was refused. The captains wisely understood that an unattached young woman could easily lead to jealousy and fighting amongst the men. Traveling west, the general rule was that one of the captains would walk along the shore while another would ride in one of the pirogues. Each pirogue had six paddlers and was loaded with supplies. The six dugout canoes, which were made from cottonwood trees, had three paddlers apiece. The pirogues had small sails, and if the wind was with them, they could race up the Missouri. On April 15th, the expedition reached the farthest point upstream on the Missouri, known by Lewis and Clark. And from here on, they would be heading into the unknown. At this point, the plains of the west would provide plenty of food for the Corps of Discovery. Elk, buffalo, deer, pronghorn, beaver, and more was in abundance. And Sacagawea would contribute to the menu, understanding where to find edible roots and plants, including wild artichokes. Lewis and Clark would keep up their copious writings, particularly Lewis, who wrote about the many animals and plants that the Corps encountered. He described the packs of gray wolves that hunted the buffalo, several kinds of geese, and the great grizzly bear. The Corps, by the way, brought in their first grizzly on April 29th, killed by Lewis and another of the men. It had taken four shots to bring down the bear, which at 300 pounds was not full-grown. As we noted in the last episode, the men of the Corps would quickly find out how difficult it was to kill a grizzly bear. In early May, Clark and Druyer killed a grizzly weighing between five and 600 pounds. Lewis found 10 musket balls in the animal, which had taken more than 20 minutes to die. A few weeks later, four of the men would try and kill another grizzly. Despite hitting the bear eight times, it refused to die or even flee. Instead, it attacked, chasing two men into the river and almost catching one before a shot to the brain killed him. On April 25th, the Corps reached the mouth of the Yellowstone River, not far from what is the modern-day North Dakota-Montana border. The captains had been told about the Yellowstone by the Hadatsa tribe. Clark measured the Missouri to be 330 yards wide and the Yellowstone to be 297 yards wide. Up to this point, things had gone well for the Corps. They were making good time, 
food was plentiful, and the men were healthy. That night, the company celebrated with some whiskey, as well as music and singing and dancing. The music was courtesy of Private Cruzette and his fiddle. Interestingly, if Lewis and Clark had followed the Yellowstone, which the Hadatsa had said was navigable to its source in the mountains, which, by the way, is at today's Yellowstone National Park, they would have been able to reach the Pacific weeks, maybe even months earlier. The Corps would have been able to abandon the Yellowstone River at what is now Livingston, Montana, go west, and cross the mountains at Bozeman Pass. This would have gotten them to Three Forks weeks earlier. But orders said to follow the Missouri, so follow the Missouri they did. On May 14th, one of the pirogues tipped in a storm, spilling many items, including supplies and the court journals. Clark would credit Sacagawea for her quick thinking and her saving many of the items. The captains blamed Toussaint Charbonneau for the disaster, saying he had panicked. Both Lewis and Clark did not hold the man in high esteem, but they tolerated him due to his translating abilities and the translating abilities of Sacagawea. As a note, one of the things we run into at times on the Lewis and Clark expedition is the sudden disappearance of records by the captain and the men. Some of this is understandable. They were busy or perhaps sick and could not write down things that day or for a week. But another explanation is that accidents like this that I just described resulted in the loss of some of the core documents. In fact, Private Joseph Waterhouse would note in his journal, quote, Some of the papers and nearly all of the books got wet, end quote. No matter, I just thought I'd mention this curiosity in case any of you ever decide to go and read the journals of the expedition. In late May, the Corps would come to the Missouri Breaks, a section of the river that is difficult to navigate due to its countless bends and sandbars and rapids. The climate was dry and food was scarce here. This area, which is about 160 miles long, is isolated even today. Lewis called the Breaks, quote, the deserts of America, end quote. The Corps would struggle through this section into June. On May 25th, the expedition brought in its first-ever bighorn sheep. In an interesting note, you find Lewis's description of the bighorn sheep copied by Clark. It is something that they do going forward. Historians speculate that the near sinking of the pirogue ten days previous caused the captains to make duplicate records of critical scientific observations in case one copy was lost or ruined. Again, this is really not critical to our story, but it is good to know for anyone reading the expedition's journals and I think it speaks to the wisdom and professionalism of Captains Lewis and Clark. The next day, on May 26th, Clark climbed the bluffs surrounding the Missouri, and there spied something extraordinary. He would write, quote, From this point I beheld the Rocky Mountains for the first time. End quote. While thrilled to see this landmark ahead of him, the captain noted the snowy peaks, an ominous sign. These would not be mountains a few thousand feet high, but something much more formidable. Onward the Corps went. In the breaks, due to the shallow waters and dangerous rocks, the Corps often traveled slowly as they were forced to pull the canoes and the pirogues up the river. On May 29th, the Corps came to the mouth of another river. Lewis would call it the Judith River, after his sister, a name that has stuck to this day. Here the expedition came upon an abandoned camp of more than 100 recently occupied teepees. Looking at the discarded items, Sacagawea identified the previous occupants as Atsina, a plains people. By the way, I want to mention that we are going to run into a lot of different Native American tribes and peoples, and I want to apologize for my pronunciations. It's really not my strong suit, and even if I get things technically right, I can tell you that it will not be elegant. Thank you for understanding. On June 3rd, the Corps of Discovery reached the mouth of a large river, and this presented a problem. The captains had not expected this river, and they did not know which was the true Missouri. The river, which today we call the Marias, was about 200 yards wide, compared to 370 for the Missouri, 
but it came from the northwest, while the Missouri flowed from the southwest. The descriptions of the Missouri provided by the Hadatsa had been relatively accurate up to this point, but now Lewis and Clark were stumped. They had not expected two rivers. The North Fork, reported Lewis, was more consistent in color with the Missouri, being whitish-brown. The South Fork was clearer and swifter. Here were two options, and the captains just did not know which was the correct path. Thus, the expedition set up camp and put together scouting parties to head up each river. Sergeant Gass and two men followed the South Fork, while Sergeant Pryor and two others went up the North. When nothing was determined by this, a larger party was dispatched, this time Lewis leading some men up the North Fork and Clark taking a party up the South. Lewis set off up the North Fork with six men on the morning of July 4, 1805. They traveled for three days before heading back on the 7th. The return journey was almost a disaster when Lewis slipped in the rain while walking along a bluff. He almost fell from a height of 100 feet, but managed to stop himself, and thus tragedy was averted. When Lewis returned, he said that the North Fork was not the Missouri. As for Clark, he headed up the South Fork. When he returned, he conferred with Lewis and came to the same conclusion, that the South Fork was the true Missouri. There are reasons that they came to this conclusion. First, the South Fork was clearer and swifter, and the riverbed was lined with smooth stones, all signs that it was fed from the mountains. Second, as noted, the North Fork was muddier. Lewis reasoned that the North Fork must run across a long distance through the plains to pick up enough sediment to make it so murky. All of this made the captains believe that the South Fork was the true Missouri. But the men of the party were not convinced. The North Fork looked like the Missouri they had been traveling on. Private Cruzette, who was an expert boatman, believed the North Fork was the way to go, and most of the party agreed with him. But in the end, the captains stuck to their beliefs. They told the men, South. And despite their misgivings, they did not argue. Again, it is a testament to the leadership qualities of Captains Lewis and Clark, and to the professionalism of the soldiers. Thus, South it was. It was a critical and correct decision. By the way, if the party had gone north on the Marias River, they would have ended up in a bad situation. The expedition would have had to turn back or try and push over the mountains of northern Montana. The latter decision would likely have ended in disaster. So, at this point, the Missouri River was rough, and the captains believed that the Great Falls were ahead. They decided it was time to cache some of their belongings. A camp was set up, called Camp Deposit, and numerous supplies were collected in a cache. This included the blacksmith bellows and tools, animal furs and skins, axes, files, corn, pork, salt, chisels, tin cups, a pair of rifles and powder, plus beaver traps. Also, one of the pierogues was hidden. The idea was that the expedition could lighten their load heading upstream and then retrieve all of these supplies on the return journey. The plan going upriver was to have Clark stay with the canoes in the pirogue, as he was seen as a better riverman than Lewis. Captain Lewis would scout ahead on foot with a smaller party. On June 13, 1805, Lewis was ahead of the expedition when he and four others heard the sounds of falls in the distance. Lewis wrote, quote, When my ears were saluted with the agreeable sound of the fall of water and advancing a little further, I saw the spray arise above the plain like a column of smoke. It soon began to make a roaring too tremendous to be mistaken for any cause short of the Great Falls of the Missouri. End quote. At noon that day, Lewis arrived at the Great Falls of the Missouri. He would call it, quote, the grandest sight I have ever beheld. End quote. Reaching the Great Falls confirmed that the captains had taken the correct fork in the river ten days earlier. So overwhelmed was Lewis by the sight, he lamented his inability to write a description of the falls that would do it justice. However, Lewis and his men were in for a bit of a surprise. Yes, they had found a great waterfall, but what lay ahead of them was even more amazing. 
The next day, they would find four more waterfalls. The Great Falls of the Missouri are, in reality, a series of waterfalls, five in total, found over a 10-mile stretch near what is present-day Great Falls, Montana. Their heights range from 6 to 87 feet, and the stretch contains many dangerous rapids. The Hadatsa had not mentioned five falls, and while Lewis marveled at them, he understood portaging the expedition's canoes and supplies was going to now be a very difficult task. After the falls, Lewis would spot a fork in the river a couple miles beyond the final cataract. This was the Sun River. He went to see it and shot a buffalo along the way. While he was waiting for the animal to die, he was surprised by a grizzly bear. Without a loaded rifle to defend himself, Lewis dove into the Missouri River, and thankfully the grizzly did not follow. Clark would lead the canoes upriver, but he was forced to stop about five miles from the Great Falls due to the rapids. Here the Corps would, again, cache many items rather than haul them past the waterfalls. This included books, specimens of plants, animals, and minerals, plus food, weapons, ammunition, and the second of the pirogues. The expedition would run into yet another scare on June 16th when Sacagawea, who had been sick for several days, took a turn for the worse. Lewis reported she had a high fever, irregular breathing, and that her pulse was barely perceptible. Her hands and arms were twitching involuntarily. Lewis would give her some opium and Peruvian bark, the latter contained quinine, plus water from a sulfur spring. It seemed to work. By night, Sacagawea's condition would stabilize. Another tragedy was averted. The portage of the canoes and supplies would be a long, back-breaking enterprise that would take an entire month. The men would make small wagons to help haul the gear and canoes, but it was far from ideal. Think about it. You load up all you can carry, and you hike uphill 16 miles. Your day probably is done at that point. Next day, you turn around and go back. Then repeat it again, and again, and again. It would have been an immensely tedious process. One of the first items carried up the river was the iron frame boat that Lewis had had specially constructed back east. If you remember, this was a lightweight iron frame that Lewis and President Jefferson had designed. The idea was that the frame could be brought up over the falls in pieces. Once put together, animal skins could be wrapped around the frame to form a hull. The men of the Corps carried the pieces of the iron frame boat past the falls and put it together at a camp set up on White Bear Island. They used 28 elk skins and 4 buffalo skins for the coverings. On July 9th, it was put in the water for the first time. The result was a leaky boat. Unfortunately, the ambitious experiment by Lewis and Jefferson failed. Within a day, it was clear the boat would not work. The lack of pine trees in the area had meant that there was no pine pitch to seal the skins. Lewis instead used a combination of beeswax and buffalo tallow, which did not work very well. Lewis later said that if he had used buffalo skins instead of elk skins, the experiment would have been a success. But it was not to be. Getting more skins and trying to redo the process would take too long. The Americans dismantled the iron frame and cached it. The expedition would now need more watercraft, so the men went about finding and building two new dugout canoes. The time constructing the iron frame boat and portaging the gear and canoes and supplies to the camp at White Bear Island was fraught with dangers. The big problem was the grizzlies, who were numerous in the area. The great bears were so worrisome, Lewis forbade the men to go anywhere alone and ordered them to sleep with their rifles at their sides. Luckily, Lewis's dog, Seaman, was always on alert at night and warned the party if the grizzlies got too close. On July 4th, the Corps of Discovery took some time to celebrate the nation's 29th birthday. The last of the whiskey was drunk by the men, and there was music and dancing. This was kind of a huge deal. No more whiskey. As we talked about previously, whiskey was sort of a staple for men in the Army, just as much as food and water. 
The lack of it could have been an issue, but again, in a nod to the professionalism of the men of the Corps, it would not cause any significant problems for Lewis and Clark. No doubt the men wanted their whiskey, but they understood the situation, and they lived with it. One other important decision made at this time surrounded the captain's earlier thought to dispatch three men back down the river to St. Louis, carrying the specimens and journals and maps the Corps had acquired since leaving the Mandan villages. The captains decided against this action, feeling that losing 10% of their force wasn't worth it. On July 15th, eight canoes, including the new ones made from a 25-foot-long and a 33-foot-long cottonwood tree, departed the expedition's camp and continued their journey up the Missouri. At this point, the expedition was more than 2,000 miles from the mouth of the Great River. The Americans were heading for Three Forks, which, from the falls of the Missouri, is about 150 miles as the crow flies, but double or even triple that on the river. Within a day of departing the Great Falls area, the expedition came upon an abandoned camp, which was identified as Shoshone. This was critical for Lewis and Clark. They could see the mountains looming in the distance, and they would need the help of the local natives to cross them. On July 22nd, Sacagawea reported seeing places she remembered, which relieved Lewis, who was worrying that they would never find the woman's people. The difficult thing for the Americans was that the Shoshone did not really want to be found. And even more important, the Shoshone weren't really in the area, save for maybe a few scouting parties. The Shoshone did not come down to the Three Forks area in great numbers until later in the summer and early fall, to hunt the buffalo and other herd animals. Now, in the middle of summer, they were fishing in the mountains on the Salmon and Lemhi rivers. What Shoshone were around were hiding from the approaching Americans, believing that they were hostile to them, perhaps thinking them to be Blackfeet warriors. To try and signal their peaceful intentions, the Americans had a small flag raised on each of the canoes. To display a flag or a pennant was a common thing with the native tribes of the area. It said, I come in peace. Pressing upriver on foot, Clark and a few of the men in the party, including Toussaint Charbonneau, reached Three Forks on July 27th. They found a fire-blackened prairie and signs of activity, including horse tracks, but no natives. Here, I want to take a moment to stop and salute the Corps of Discovery. They had reached Three Forks, which is the headwaters of the Missouri. They had just traversed the entire river, more than 2,300 miles. That in of itself was an amazing journey. Lewis and Clark could have turned around and this expedition would have been historic. Instead, there is much more to come. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, the Americans had reached three forks. That means three more rivers. Today we call these rivers the Madison, Jefferson, and Gallatin. But where to go next? The Shoshone were nowhere to be found to offer guidance. Clark would scout up the Jefferson River, which was the southwest fork, as well as the middle fork, the Madison. But again, no Shoshone were to be found. The captains fretted about missing the natives. They needed horses and directions to cross the mountains. And to complicate matters, William Clark was now sick. He was struck by a bad fever, and even worse, his foot was suffering from a growth on his ankle that made walking difficult. 
The captains decided that the Jefferson River offered the Corps the best option going forward. With Clark disabled, Lewis took command of the advance party and proceeded to scout up the river, the canoes following. Lewis would come to yet another fork, this being the Wisdom River, which today we call the Big Hole River. Lewis left a note at this juncture, hanging on a tree, telling Clark to continue up the Jefferson. However, Clark would not get the note. The captains later speculated that a beaver took down the tree it was hanging on. Clark would proceed up the Wisdom River, which was a poor decision. The river was twisty and full of rapids, and Clark would be forced to turn around. Unfortunately, Clark had sent Private George Shannon ahead to hunt, and the man never rejoined the expedition. For the second time on the journey, Shannon, who had gotten lost a year earlier, was now missing. On August 7th, the captains regrouped and decided to cache one of the canoes as the expedition's supplies were dwindling. But more importantly, it was here that Sacagawea recognized the point of a high plain that she said was near the summer retreat of her people. This came as a great relief to everyone in the Corps. With Clark still ailing, Lewis set off up the river on foot on August 9th in hopes of finding the Shoshone. He would take with him George Druyer and two privates. It was a curious decision, since none of the men had knowledge of the natives they hoped to meet or spoke the language. As a note, before Lewis departed, the missing Private Shannon reappeared, finally catching up to the party. All was good. Thus, Lewis would head up the Jefferson on foot, leaving Clark to bring up the canoes. For Clark and the expedition, the trouble here was that the Jefferson quickly proved to be an immensely difficult river to navigate. It was shallow and full of boulders, and the weather was hot and the work was slow. The men were exhausted, and they were getting sick and battling injuries. Remember, they had been in the wild for four months. Canoes would get swamped by the rugged waters, and gear and supplies would get wet and ruined. They were lucky to make four or five miles in a day. So, as Clark and the canoes struggled to move up the Missouri, Lewis and his men pushed onward. On August 11th, they finally made contact with the Shoshone when they spotted a single mounted man. Lewis would call out to the rider, saying, Tababone, which Sacagawea had told him meant white man. However, the native, who was likely a scout, was spooked by the party and rode off, much to Lewis's disappointment. The next day, August 12th, Lewis and his party crossed the Continental Divide, which we also call the Great Divide, at the Lemhi Pass. The Continental Divide is the hydraulic divide of North America, essentially meaning water west of the Continental Divide flows west, everything east flows east. When Lewis and his men crossed the divide, they were the first Americans to do so. From here, facing west, they would have been looking at the Bitterroot Mountains, whose peaks range from roughly eight to 10,000 feet. The next day, Lewis would finally make contact with the elusive Shoshone. He and his scouting party came upon two Shoshone women and a man. Lewis approached them alone so as not to frighten them, leaving his rifle with the others and carrying an American flag. He said the words Tababon, as he had done the day before. The Shoshone took off again. By the way, no one is sure if Tababon was the best thing for Lewis to be calling out. Some historians think the term might have meant something more like a stranger, but we don't really know. A short time later, Lewis would come upon three Shoshone women. One ran off, but this time an elderly woman and a young girl waited. Lewis saw that the older woman was frightened. To calm her, he took the woman by the hand and showed her his pale skin. Remember, his face and arms would have been deeply tanned, and he could easily have been mistaken as an Indian. He was trying to demonstrate that he wasn't one of her enemies, but someone very different. Lewis then gave her some small gifts, including some beads and a mirror. He then took some vermilion paint and dabbed it on the young girl's face, a peace symbol he had been told by Sacagawea. It seemed to work. The woman led the Americans down a trail where they were met by 60 Shoshone warriors on horseback. 
As before, Lewis showed his peaceful intentions by setting aside his weapon and holding up a flag. Along with the old woman, he approached the Shoshone War Party. The woman showed the men the gifts she had been given and convinced her people the Americans were friendly. The Shoshone warriors would approach Lewis and embrace him. The Shoshone, by the way, are huggers. It is their way of saying welcome and thanks and just about anything else. In a lot of ways, Lewis was lucky. The Shoshone could easily have taken him and his three companions as Blackfeet warriors and attacked them, but the encounter with the elderly woman had found him an ally to bridge the trust gap. Lewis handed out some minor gifts, beads and vermilion paint, and small mirrors, the latter of which the Shoshone loved. Thus, the two peoples were off to a good start. The peace pipe was smoked, and the Shoshone shared what they had to eat, which was berries and cakes. It was meager fare, but welcome. The frontiersman, George Druyer, would speak to the Shoshone using sign language, a cumbersome way to communicate, but still effective. The chief of the Shoshone was a man named Kamiawait. Through Druyer, Lewis communicated that the Americans wanted to be friends. When Lewis asked about reaching the Columbia River, he was told that the passage west was much more difficult than he imagined. A nearby river, the Lemhi, was shallow and rapid. Another river, said to be half a day's journey away, was impossible to travel on due to rocks and rapids. This would have been the modern-day Salmon River. But Lewis chalked this information up to poor communication, or perhaps deception by the Sashoni. Still, he must have realized that there was no all-water route to the Pacific, or even anything remotely resembling one. No matter what he thought, Lewis recognized that the Shoshone possessed something very important, horses. He estimated that they had over 400 of them, and he figured that it would be easy to trade for some for a journey over the mountains. But how to get over the mountains? That was the next question. If the party could not follow the rivers, how could they get to the western side? Kamiawait had never made any such crossing, but he did tell Lewis of a trail to the north that was used by the Pierce Nose Indians. That would be the Nez Perce, who lived on the other side of the mountains. They crossed over each year to come and hunt buffalo. Camille Waite said that the trail was a bad one, full of perils and no food. But Lewis latched on to the idea. He would write, quote, My route was instantly settled in my own mind. I feel perfectly satisfied that if the Indians could pass these mountains with their women and children, that we could also pass them. End quote. Lewis asked the Shoshone to come with him back to where he expected Clark and the expedition to be by now on the Jefferson River. He wanted the Shoshone to help portage their stuff up into the mountains. But the Shoshone were wary. Were these men allies of the Blackfeet? Was there an ambush awaiting them? Lewis employed a combination of pleading and threats to get the Shoshone to come with him. He said that if the Shoshone did not help them, no Americans would come and trade with them. This was not a light threat, as the Shoshone really wanted American goods, in particular guns. The Shoshone had few of them, and what they had were inferior in quality. Ultimately, Lewis challenged the Shoshone, and they followed him. On August 16th, the party reached the forks at Beaverhead, but Clark was nowhere to be found. They had not been able to get up the river thus far. This made the Shoshone suspicious. To assuage their concerns, Lewis gave his rifle to Camillo Waite and told him to shoot him if any kind of attack occurred. This shows the desperation of Lewis. He needed the Shoshone, and badly. The next day, George Drury and one of the Shoshone Indians set out looking for Clark, and much to everyone's relief, they found him. A huge problem was thus averted, as the Shoshone now recognized that the Americans were not their enemies. For their part, the Shoshone were amazed by the newcomers. They were astonished at York, having never seen a black man, and the guns and boats and other items were some of the most advanced western goods the Shoshone had ever encountered. Even Seaman, the Newfoundland dog, was of great interest. Also, the presence of Sacagawea would be rather poignant. It wasn't just that she was seeing her people for the first time in four years, although there was that, 
The most amazing thing was that the Shoshone chief, Kamiyawait, was her brother. When they realized who they were, they embraced and cried. Lewis and Clark and the Corps could not have had better luck. Here they are trying to gain the trust of the Shoshone, and who do they bring in as a translator? The chief's long-lost sister. You can't beat that. Anyhow, the Americans no longer had to use sign language to communicate. The Shoshone talked to Sacagawea, who spoke to Charbonneau in Hidatsa, who then spoke to Private Francois Labiche in French, who finally interpreted in English to Lewis and Clark. It was cumbersome, but effective. The Americans laid out their plans. They wanted to trade for horses with the Shoshone, and they wanted help to get over the mountains. However, there was a major problem here. The Shoshone weren't going west. They were coming east to hunt the buffalo herds that were gathering on this side of the mountains. The herds meant food and survival. Kamiyawait said that he would help the Americans, but even as a chief, he was limited in his influence on his people, but he pledged to do what he could. The Americans sent out an advance party, led by Clark, who was now healthy, along with 11 men to scout out the Salmon River, and confirm if it really was or wasn't an option for continuing west. If it was navigable, they would begin to build canoes. As Clark did that, Lewis led the rest of the expedition in transporting all the supplies over the Lemhi Pass to a camp he had established, which he called Camp Fortunate. During this time, Lewis would also collect information and get time to do an in-depth study of the Shoshone. For the latter, his work is an amazing record of a Native American tribe that had had little interaction with Western civilization. The Shoshone world was about to be upended, and Lewis's work is a fantastic look at a culture while it was still mostly immune to European influence. Lewis described their physical appearance, population, clothing, weapons, cooking pots, pipes, fishing methods, bows, arrows, and more. He found the Shoshone to be honest and considerate, but mired in poverty compared to the other tribes he had encountered. However, he found them generous. Even though they were hungry, they would share food with others, even strangers. Now I'd like to stop a moment and take a little sidetrack and comment on Lewis's writings of August 18, 1805. It was Captain Lewis's birthday. What follows is one of the most famous passages from the Lewis and Clark journals. Quote, This day I completed my 31st year. I reflected that I had yet done but little, very little indeed, to further the happiness of the human race or to advance the information of the succeeding generation. I viewed with regret the many hours I have spent in indolence, and now sorely feel the want of that information which those hours would have given me had they been judiciously expended. End quote. He then goes on to say that he wants to quote, live for mankind as I have heretofore lived for myself. End quote. Those are some pretty heavy thoughts, the thoughts of a deeply engaged man, a man of the Enlightenment. Here he was in the middle of nowhere. He had been traveling for two years, and at times it must have been overwhelming as he sat there wondering if he was going to survive this extraordinary trial. In one way, it reflects on the character of Meriwether Lewis. This was a talented and bright young man who wanted to do something special with his life. He had grand goals to better humanity and his nation, and it's hard not to admire him as well as William Clark. It also reflects the moodier nature of Lewis. I alluded to this in an earlier episode. Lewis's family had a history of depression, and he displayed many symptoms of the illness at times in his life. No matter, I find it kind of cool to glimpse into the inner thoughts of one of our explorers. We so rarely get these sort of musings in our podcast. So, sidetrack done. On with our story. On August 26th, Lewis and the rest of the Corps would cross the Continental Divide at Lemhi Pass in the Beaverhead Mountains, which is part of the Bitterroot Range in the Rocky Mountains. In doing so, the expedition moved from present-day Montana to Idaho. I want to mention that by crossing the Continental Divide, the expedition was now leaving American territory. 
With the Louisiana Purchase, the Americans had bought the Mississippi River and its tributaries, but everything west of the Continental Divide flowed west. Thus, it was not part of the big purchase. So, as Lewis hauled the expedition's supplies to Camp Fortunate, Clark and his men explored the Salmon River area and determined it to not be a navigable river. The expedition would need to travel by foot to get over the mountains. Clark would draw up a map of the region, including the Lemhi, Salmon, and Bitterroot Rivers, plus the Bitterroot Mountains. He determined that there were two options for the party. The first was to go southwest, but the Americans were told that the area was barren, not to mention dominated by the aggressive Bannock Indians. Plus, going southwest would be pushing towards Spanish territory, something the captains wanted to avoid. The other option was to go northwest along the trail that Camillo Wade had told Lewis about earlier. Captains agreed that this was their best option. In late August, Lewis and Clark would meet at the village of Camillo Wade and try and get the Shoshone to help them over the mountains. However, despite Camillo Wade's vow to help the Americans, his people were not budging. The truth is, they were starving, and they needed to go east where the buffalo herds were waiting. Lewis and Clark were angry at Camillo Wade, accusing him of breaking his promise. They threatened the Shoshone and tried to shame him. In the end, the Shoshone said that they would sell horses to the Americans, and an elderly man named Old Toby agreed to lead them over the mountains. With that settled, the two sides began to trade. The Shoshone were eager for American goods. What they had was limited, most of it coming via middlemen, and it was not of good quality. They wanted mirrors, cloth, knives, iron axes, and vermilion paint. To the dismay of Lewis and Clark, the Shoshone turned out to be difficult traders. They quickly realized the Americans needed their horses desperately, and they drove a hard bargain. Prices kept going up. Lewis would even trade a pistol, plus 100 rounds of ammunition, for a single horse. This demonstrates how desperate the Americans were. Ultimately, the expedition would trade for 29 horses, although the captains would later complain that many of them were old and had sore backs. No matter, on September 1st, 1805, the Corps of Discovery set out to cross the Rocky Mountains. They needed to get over the mountains before the snow set in and reach the Pacific coast. And that is where we will leave things for today. The Corps had traversed the Missouri and found the Shoshone people and were preparing to cross the Rockies. A few notes. First, the Corps was behind schedule. Portaging the supplies past the falls of the Missouri had been a much larger task than they had ever imagined, and no one had anticipated how long and difficult the journey into the mountains was going to take. And the belief that crossing the mountains was a simple affair was potentially catastrophic. But hey, that is how exploring goes. Second, the Corps may have been behind schedule, but they had also been lucky. They had picked the right river to follow when presented with a surprise fork. They had managed to make friends with the Shoshone and then barter for horses and a guide. They were on their way west, even if it was later than desired. And while the men were tired and suffering from ailments, no one had died. Considering their situation, their health was remarkably good. Third, Lewis and Clark's dream of an all-water route to the Pacific was pretty much dashed. The Rockies were way higher and wider than anyone imagined. They were no doubt suspecting that any route over the Rockies was going to not be easy. That would disappoint President Jefferson. And fourth, and finally, remember at the beginning of the episode... The keelboat had departed from the Mandan villages, carrying the expedition's writings and specimens. Well, the keelboat would return safely to St. Louis, and all the stuff would be shipped back to President Jefferson. All good for those guys. So, that is it. Next time, we will pick up as Old Toby, the elderly Shoshone native, leads the Corps of Discovery over the Rocky Mountains. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? 
If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.